Go Ghostbusters! Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! Hey, cassettes, and welcome back to the Boo Case Diaries! Boo! We're three old ghosts learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. I'm Adam. Happy Halloween. (laughs) Halloween. In June of 1984, a ghostly comedy flew into theaters and became an instant classic. Now, every spooky season, this cultural phenomenon takes over and demands to be remembered. So, before we close the case on this year's spooky season, we, <laughs> we wanted to revisit one of the biggest and ghostliest movies of all time, Ghostbusters! <laughs> oh my gosh, I think we were saying before we recorded, this is one of the biggest movies we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. This movie's very popular. So. Oh yeah. Yep. This comedy film drew in audiences with its perfect blend of spooky and silly. The concept of disgraced scientists capturing ghosts for a living was just too funny to fail, especially with the likes of Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Ernie Hudson leading the way. Not to mention Sigourney Weaver, who had survived Ridley Scott's Alien only a few years before. Oh man, she was <laughs> she was on fire around this time, man. Oh yeah, very big. So let's all hop into the Ecto-1 and bust the history of Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys remember when you first saw this movie or is it just- Oh man, oh. it's an absolute blur. I- <laughs> yeah, I really don't know. I don't know what age I was. I don't know- anything i think it was one of those movies that's just it's introduced so young everyone has has always seen ghostbusters yes like (laughs) yeah ghostbusters has always been it has never not existed you have never you cannot unsee you have never not seen ghostbusters yeah you're born having seen it (laughs) (laughs) so we know everyone has already seen Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as Adam as said. we yeah, stated, as right, right. You're born having seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here is a quick summary for you. Doctors Peter Venkman, Raymond Stance, and Egon Spangler have lost their positions at a local university. Desperate for money, the three men focus on their research regarding the supernatural and start a business as ghost exterminators. Operating out of an old firehouse, they develop a way to capture and hold spirits. Although their exploits grant them fame and money, they soon discover that messing with the afterlife is no joke. (laughs) (laughs) The Ghostbusters, as they call themselves, stumble upon a gateway to another dimension and must stop the beings that intend to use it to unleash hell upon New York. Do these bumbling scientists have what it takes to keep evil at bay? Find out next week. At 11. (laughs) On Ghostbusters. I love the idea of this movie. It's so fun. Just, I mean, it's in the title. You get it. Yeah. Like, it really is. Like, you're hanging with your buddies, busting some ghosts. Yeah. (laughs) Busting makes me feel good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it because... In this world, it's like established. Ghosts exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Period. We're past that. Yeah. Now we do this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and a kick-ass fire station that they have as their, their it's place. It's so cool, like, yeah. They're like way excited about that even too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Let's talk about the making of the movie. All right. You know it was coming. In 1981, Dan Aykroyd developed a movie treatment for him and his Blues Brothers co-star John Belushi. He got the idea from one of his father's magazines that he read while staying in his family's farmhouse. The article that piqued his interest was about building hardware that could freeze the image of an apparition. Ackroyd's family has a long history with the supernatural and they would regularly hold seances. So it was only fitting that Ackroyd write and star in a movie about ghosts. The would-be movie was called Ghost Smashers. 
It was a horror film with a lot of wry humor, and it followed a group of tough men that acted as interdimensional exterminators. He imagined that he would cast himself, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy in the leading roles, but that was never meant to be. The idea of a supernatural comedy was not new, but it also wasn't popular. Several films in the 1940s saw comedians like Bob Hope and Abbott and Costello blend the genres of horror and comedy. By the early 1980s, horror comedies were no longer in style, and Aykroyd intended to revitalize the concept for a new generation. Director Ivan Reitman had just found success with two films, Meatballs and Stripes, when he read Aykroyd's film treatment for a supernatural comedy. He was interested, but he had a lot of notes. For example, he wanted the movie to be based more in reality, making it accessible to modern audiences. The first draft was scary and explored different dimensions. The next draft would take place in modern-day New York. Reitman also convinced Aykroyd to bring comedy writer Harold Ramis on board. Ramis had written modern classics like Animal House and Caddyshack, and Aykroyd agreed to bring him on to help write the screenplay for this film as well. Unlike Aykroyd, Ramis wasn't much of a believer in the supernatural, but he had been scared by ghost stories before. He loved the fact that Aykroyd had created a story where terrifying concepts were so mundane. The Ghostbusters encounters otherwise terrifying phenomena with a blasé attitude. I love it. Yes. Makes me feel right at home. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, these things aren't scary at all. Uh, It's awesome, you know, because it is. It's something that some people are so scared of. Mm -hmm. And then. Yeah. And because I love how they can basically wreck an entire building pretty much and still get paid and not have to pay for all the damages. Oh my because god. Because they just they just Gross. threaten they're like, Oh, oh, you you don't want us to we can just release it again. Like <laughs> <laughs> four thousand dollars or whatever, you know. Yeah. yeah. It almost feels like a scam. Yeah. But the ghosts are real, so yeah. it's so, not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you couldn't see them. Yeah. Then it'd be like, what are these guys doing? Just destroying stuff and making and, us pay them? Yeah. It's like, no, there are ghosts. No. <laughs> so you need somebody to take care of them. Ramus understood exactly where the script should go in terms of looking at horror through a comedic lens. Together, they revised and refined the story, writing all the way until shooting began. The actors didn't always have written dialogue, but more of a template to go on. There were constant changes with Bill Murray and Rick Moranis improvising many of their lines. When director Ivan Reitman met with Columbia to pitch the movie, they asked him what the budget would be. He picked a number on the spot, and the film got the green light. He just made it up. That was amazing. Wow, he was That's like, amazing. he's uh, $30 million. And they yep. said, okay. All right. Wow, do you think he could have gotten more? <laughs> he probably, probably could have. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, $90 million. Yeah. I mean, that was... I think he said three times the budget of his last film, so... <laughs> he was oh, like, dang, all okay. right. <laughs> the studio liked the big comedy names attached to the project, and they needed a film to come out in June of next year. So they decided that this was the one. The race was on to turn an unrefined script into a finished film in just over a year. Bro. Oof, that's a lot. Nuh-uh. There is... I, I cannot express enough how much of a time crunch they were on. Yeah, dude. <laughs> this is, this, they had no time. Oh my god! The script wasn't even done. Yeah. And he went to this pitch without the script because he was like, I'm just going to talk about who's in it. Because yeah. like, who's the script will not convince the, them. The general, yeah. Like, oh. Right, because the script that Dan Aykroyd had written was insane. <laughs> I mean, it was like, Oh my god! Yeah. All kinds of interdimensional <laughs> stuff going on. Right. Like but there, he was like, I know we can we can refine right. this. There were notes of things that and lots of things yeah. that like have made it to the final movie. Yeah. But that I mean, it was very different. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to think like this because if somebody if I had an unfinished script, yeah, and somebody came to me and was like. You get $30 million to make that a movie by this time next year. I'd be like, no. (laughs) Impossible. Also, you're going to need a lot of complex special and visual effects. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Add that on top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many scenes in Ghostbusters were filmed on location in New York City, while others were filmed on sets in Los Angeles. The firehouse was a combination of two locations. 
The exterior of the firehouse was New York City's Hook and Ladder Company 8, and the interior was L.A.'s Fire Station Number 23. Associate producer Michael Gross lived around the corner from the station in New York and scoped it out for the movie. It is still unused today. Awesome. Man, it's so cool. It's like, it almost feels small. Yeah. Like, why is, like, this small of a fire station for New York? Uh. You know, obviously there are many fire (laughs) stations in New York. (laughs) Yeah. But it just, you know. Yeah. The Los Angeles firehouse had been shut down since 1960 and since rented out for film shoots. John DeCure, the film's production designer, chose this location for the interior shots because it matched the New York station's exterior. The famous sequence involving Slimer at the Cedric Hotel was filmed on location in the ballroom of the Millennium Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, although the hallway scenes were filmed on a soundstage. Like most scenes involving a specter, the footage of the ghost was filmed in Boss Film Studios and combined later using an optical printer. Optical printers were a way of reshooting film to include special effects and predated digital effects software like After Effects. Nice. Dang, man. You're talking about how many different places they're used to, to shoot this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I could be the one to like keep that in line. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, when watching the movie, I never, ever know. <laughs> you never think about it. When yeah. the like place changes. Yeah. Because yeah. you just think, well, yeah, that's the outside it's, of the building. The and there's right, the inside. Right. You the just same. assume. Yes. Here's the ballroom and the hallway of the same hotel. There it yeah. is. Yeah. Nope. All of them are different locations. I'm like, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> and having to film everything without the special effects. And then yeah. not like not just that. Like... You have all of the special effect people watching the film and being like, okay, so that's where the ghost is going to be. We have to figure out how Mm. to film that here and Mm. make the ghost in that approximate location. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult (laughs) thing to do. Also, one thing about the firehouse, we didn't really talk about the firehouse too much, but I think, Marcy, you said that. Yeah. um, The two firehouses that they use, the outside and the inside were both built like in the same year or the same approximate year, like that time period. Mm-hmm. So that's why they matched up so well is because they oh. they were built like in similar times. Yeah. So cool. it worked it just worked out. <laughs> and I think I read somewhere too that like the scene where Dan Aykroyd gets super excited and he rides down the pole and they're mm. the, Yeah. <laughs> yes, that too. That too. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to lowball the the real estate. The agent. real estate agent and Dan Aykroyd's character Ray just comes in and is like, "Hey, does this pole still work?" Wow, this place is great. When can we move in? You have gotta try this pole. I'm gonna get my stuff. The thing was, is that that was kind of Dan Aykroyd's energy. He was actually really excited for that place so it was really kind of just genuine excitement mm-hmm. too and i'm like yeah. honestly nice. same i probably would be pretty excited to yeah for sure. you know, slide down a, a fire pole i think one of the things that made the movie work really well was that all the actors were very well cast like it was mm-hmm. they yeah. were very much cast yep. like their characters yep. or the characters were written for them yeah exactly when Dan Aykroyd was writing the first draft of Ghostbusters, he called up John DeVicus, an old school buddy, and asked him to help illustrate some of the concepts for the movie. He sent Aykroyd an envelope with his renderings of Slimer, the Ecto-1, the proton packs and uniforms, and the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Aykroyd had described the character as a demonic combination of the Michelin Man, the Pillsbury Doughboy, and the Angelus Marshmallow Man, a Canadian mascot. It was Devikis that decided to place a sailor hat on Stay Puffed, giving him his iconic look. Yeah, yeah it feels <laughs> so much like it could exist as a real it brand really character. Yeah. So, like, I want, where can I get some Stay Puffed marshmallows? <laughs> I because know. It's so cute, It's too. so authentic. And coming up with the absolutely iconic Echo One. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah. The idea that it's a like a re... <laughs> reused hearse yes is the best idea you could have come up with so cool what's like and when he made that first draft and things were really different those were all things that were there Mm -hmm. in the first draft like he he came up with all that stuff from the beginning like the 
the Ecto-1, Amazing. the proton packs, and all of that Amazing. stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Special effects artist Richard Edlund had just left Industrial Light and Magic to start his own visual effects house when he got a tip that Ivan Reitman was making a movie that might require his services. His first project at Boss Film Studios, Edlund's new company, had fallen through, and he was in need of work for him and the group of artists that followed him from ILM. When Edlund saw the script and the budget, he convinced Reitman, Ramis, and Aykroyd to pare down some of the more outrageous scenes and figure out where their money w- would be best spent. Smart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he was yeah. like, oh, this is not, that's not enough money for what you've <laughs> like, got going on yeah, here. He's like, oh I've been God. doing this a while. <laughs> Edlund's effects studio still needed to be built. And to make things even more hectic, he took on another film project at the same time. Boss Film Studios had 10 months to build a studio and complete the special effects for two movies. There were between 300 and 400 people working on the special effects at any given time, with the crew working around the clock to get everything done. My goodness. No, thank you. <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that, Adam? Absolutely not. <laughs> they would literally just be working the they would be working 24 hours wow. and they would just have people working in shifts. Yeah. But like somebody, they were, you know what I mean? They were never closed. Yeah. Nope. (laughs) I don't care how good your movie is. I'm not doing that. That sounds like an absolute nightmare. You could be a part of movie history, Adam. If you could guarantee that it would be a hit like Ghostbusters, I'll do it one time. (laughs) I'll do this for one movie. (laughs) According to Edlin, the most technically difficult sequence in the film was the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. And it also happens to be his favorite. The scene combined a matte painting, miniatures, blue screenshots, and model cars that were about a foot long. At one point, a car smashes into a fire hydrant that spurts out sand, but of course, it looks like water to the audience. Wow. That's pretty cool. These scenes were so technically complicated, and there are so many little pieces and mm-hmm. parts to them, but they're so fascinating. Like If you like slowed it down and watched it, it's like, God, this is a masterpiece. Bill Bryan sculpted the Stay Puffed Man and played the character, too. His colleague, Linda Frobos, created the final head and hat of the character, and Bryan focused on the suit from the shoulders down. They built the suit out of soft foam, but the Marshmallow Man's crotch kept collapsing. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Of all the places. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't, We're gonna, don't, yeah, nope. don't say All right, so they had to create an inner shell of L200 foam, which has a similar consistency to pool noodles. One of the biggest challenges was hiding all the seams and wrinkles, which were pushed to the back, under the arms, and beneath the character's bib. Multiple suits were built, which also helped hide the seams and wrinkles. One suit had wrinkles pushed to the back, while the other had them pushed to the front. A separate suit was created for when the Stave Puffed Man catches fire, which was worn by stuntman Tom Sassir. Yeah. So basically, when you see the shots at the back of the Stay Puff Man, all of the wrinkles and crap have been pushed <laughs> to the front. Uh, and then when you see the shot of the front, they've all been all pushed the to the back. Smart. Have you, yeah. Have, have you guys seen that meme of Homer Simpson standing kind of proud, like kind of thinned out? And then okay. you see a shot of him from behind. He's got all of his fat, like, pinned <laughs> behind him. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what uh, that yes, is. Yes, yep. like, that is exactly it. Because yep. yep. he looks so smooth and mm-hmm. so soft. Yes. But, he yeah. Looks like he a was, marshmallow. Man. He was real, yeah, yeah. bumpy and wrinkled. And <laughs> all of the ghosts seen in the film were created in Boss Film Studios' ghost shop. Stuart Ziff was in charge of the department, which had about 60 people by the end of production. He was told at the beginning that he would have 15. Wow. He ended up with 60. 60. I mean, he needed them, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. Each of the main creatures had a very different look and feel, and that's because Ziff hired several different artists to create each character. The practical nature of the ghosts in the movie make them unique from each other. While they might have had a more streamlined look if they had been created with CGI. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It definitely gives it a a charm that yeah. is very Ghostbusters, you know. Yeah. yeah. Even if yeah, even if the same guy designed them all, they would all look kind of the same. Sure. Yeah. Because they had different artists doing every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then, I mean, the different processes of making things, things just happen when you make stuff, you Mm -hmm. know? Some things you you don't know are going to happen. It just makes it have a certain look that it might not have had. mm -hmm. And we we mentioned just a minute ago about, you know, giving each ghost more personality Mm -hmm. in its own way. And that's a good way to do it. You know, each makes sure that they're different and <laughs> yeah we, and since there are no rules to what makes a ghost yeah like exactly w- what creates a ghost yeah then it can go in any direction you want yeah this totally when i was growing up i had a very specific idea of what a ghost was yes. yeah and you watch this movie and i was like what you know <laughs> like slimer being able to eat human food yeah, yeah. you know and all of it i remember just like what that's the, a ghost and like, the fact <laughs> that he was green yeah yeah, yeah. Although the artists had concept art to work from, it was still a huge challenge to bring the ghosts to life. The library ghost was played by Ruth Oliver in her human form. Oliver was a well-known astrologer in Hollywood, and she only had one other screen credit throughout her career. Visual effects supervisor John Bruno storyboarded the scene, shot it backwards, and then printed it forward. He had used the same trick working on the film Poltergeist, a few years earlier. Hey, and, and you know what's funny is that I do see kind of a resemblance between yeah. the final ghost mm-hmm. and like the ghost in Poltergeist that he worked on, which is yes. the one that comes down the staircase. Uh, yeah. So they both have that like the fabric kind of ethereal kind of look to Love. them. Yeah. Steve Johnson created the puppet for the monstrous ghost, working off of a design by comic artist Bernie Wrightson. At this point in the film, the audience has mostly seen comedic sequences. So the transformation from the librarian to the monster had to be legitimately scary in order for viewers to understand that this wasn't just a comedy film. Uh, this ghost is in the opening shot, like in the yeah. opening scene, but we don't see it. We've already kind of been built up to this ghost yeah. a little bit. And so there is still kind of some like... There is, it's kind of a freaky feeling. Nope. And then we get this pretty horrifying creature. Yeah. The artists made a cast of Ruth Oliver and they molded the foam latex skin. Mark Brian Wilson was one of the puppeteers that worked on the library ghost. He stuck screws, pipe, wood pieces, and whatever else he could find underneath the fake skin so it would look uneven and protruding. The team also added gorilla teeth in the monster's mouth. The puppet could be maneuvered using four levers, designed by engineer John Alberti and his father Nicholas. This limited what the puppet could do, which limited the possibility of mistakes. The inner workings of the librarian ghost are mostly wood. The puppet itself took about eight weeks to create, and filming took less than two days. Wow, that's a lot of work for just, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Two, Two days of shooting. The mechanics worked perfectly, and in one motion, the levers made the librarian's eyes sink into her sockets, her jaw extend, and her clothes tear away to reveal a horrifying, ghostly body. An air hose and a fan blew back her hair to reveal the final form. Yikes. (laughs) Oh, boy. Nope. (laughs) Not what you would expect a librarian to look like if uh, she haunted a library, huh? (laughs) Right. Yeah, and not not what you'd expect a Ghostbusters ghost to look like because up until this point, like we said, it's kind of been pretty lighthearted. And even the effects of the librarian ghost with the books, it's like Mm -hmm. harmless, just moving books around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You picture more of a Slimer and then you get her. (laughs) And you get her. She's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I love that she has a little shh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The ghost was supposed to say quiet when it burst out. It was like Mm. quiet. They did a roar instead, which. Yeah. That's better. Yeah. It matches the fine, yeah. matches all the like the dogs, the demon thingies that come out later. Oh, yeah. Behind the scenes, the infamous Green Hotel ghost was called Onion Head. He was he smelled like onions. In the movie oh. there was like a deleted scene or whatever uh, they talk about. Uh, nice. He wasn't officially named Slimer until two years later in the TV series The Real Ghostbusters, which is the name we all know him by today. They never call him Slimer in this movie. That's mm-hmm. true. They don't. This is one of those kind of almost Mandela effect type things. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it's like you think that they everyone just calls him Slimer. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he had no name in the movie. and uh, But there's a scene where 
Bill Murray says, you know, he slimed me. He slimed, yeah. And so then people called him Slimer. Makes sense. Steve Johnson sculpted Slimer, working off the concept art by Tom Enriquez. It took a long time for Johnson to make a version of Slimer that was approved for filming. Over a 12-week period, he made at least 12 different versions of the ghost. Right before the final approval meeting, Johnson got word that Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd wanted the ghost to look like John Belushi's character, Bluto, from Animal House. Johnson pulled an all-nighter to design a character that fit the description, and Slimer was finally approved. Yeah, he's got John Belushi's eyebrows. They said that he's got uh, John Belushi's like facial expressions. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, he created so many different versions. Each time we take it in, eyes are too big. Mm-hmm. Eyes are too small. Ugh. Give them this. Give them ears. Take the ears away, you know. <laughs> Just yeah. all these Trying different changes. All different. Yeah, and then finally, the very last second, they told him we wanted to look like John Belushi. And he was like, what? Well, just you? tell just yeah. tell me that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he stayed up all night. And then they, he, they finally were like, that's it. That's the one. The Slimer costume was custom made to perfectly fit the body of puppeteer Mark Brian Wilson. And included a fiberglass helmet beneath the ghost's head. One puppeteer wore Slimer's tongue like a sleeve, controlling its movements with his hand. That's pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> the facial expressions were controlled with bicycle cables and joysticks off screen. The ghost's lower body had a wireframe like a hoop skirt, which made it easier for the puppeteers to contort its shape. Slimer was filmed in front of a black screen with his controllers wearing black leotards so that they would not show up on the final shot. Yeah, much like how the Muppets were filmed Yeah, a yes. lot of the time. They were filmed in front of the screen wearing black and on the black screen, and Slimer required a lot of people to move him all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, like, because the librarian ghost had those special levers and pulleys, like, it would have taken about 14 people to operate the librarian ghost if wow. they hadn't had if that they, special yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, so there there were a lot of people operating Slimer. You know, Slimer does feel very Muppety. Yeah. yeah. He did, kind of yeah. moves in that way. It's yep. kind of loose and yeah. silly. They said he, they kind of modeled him a little bit after like a Tex Avery character. Oh, and yeah. like, if you see the bottom of him, they said it was like a Victorian hoop skirt. Ooh. You see the bottom of him, you see how it kind of squishes and moves around. Yeah. yeah. And yep. that's what they're doing all that stuff to him. <laughs> the ghost was shot between four and six frames per second, with every movement exaggerated. Miniatures of the character were used in the scene as well, like when he's spinning on the chandelier and flying across the screen. Ivan Reitman provided Slimer's vocals, which was the finishing touch on the movie's most famous ghost. Don't move. It won't hurt you. By far the most famous ghost, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. yeah. It, it's so funny to think about. There's a guy in this costume, and he's got the helmet on. Yeah. And he's, and he's working really hard to like move the arms and just move stuff. But also, yeah. they're picking up food, real food, and pouring it down the slot of the ghost costume. Mm-hmm. So he is getting <laughs> wine and oh cheese gosh. and whatever else they're throwing in there all Legit over him. him. Yeah, yeah, like just pouring it on top <laughs> of this guy. Oh, man. How many takes do they have to do? <laughs> <laughs> they actually did a full day of shooting. He was sick, and they did a yeah. full day of shooting oh. with another guy. But they oh. just throw out all that footage because oh, he moved completely differently. Different. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. This entire episode could be just about the special effects in Ghostbusters. That is true. Yep. 100%. So we're not talking, we're just scratching the surface. Yes. Uh, we're not talking about the dogs very much that they did, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the stop motion and the six foot statues and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. Or the slime that they created for this and had like a thickening agent and oh my goodness. the ectoplasm and all that stuff. There are so many special effects. Yes. The combination of stop motion animation, miniatures, sculpting, and puppeteering gave this film some of the most memorable and best executed special effects of the decade. I mean, seriously, it's very good. Yes. Yeah. But one of the most horrifying demonstrations of special effects in the movie is the scene when Dana gets grabbed by massive demon arms through her armchair. 
Ooh, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. She's like on the phone with her mom. Yeah. She hangs up. She gets grabbed by the arms. And then and, slowly. And they like grab her head. And the head, that's right, yeah. And then they like, they turn her toward the, the kitchen to be possessed. area, yeah. And then yeah. the chair just slowly just starts like getting yeah. pulled towards there. It's like, no. Yeah. Designer Don Carner sliced up the chair's fabric and treated it with acid so that it would break away easily. Yeah, so those arms could just bust right through. There were three demon arm sculptures created by Steve Neal with the help of veteran mold maker Gunnar Ferdinandsen. The stage was built four feet high so that the three puppeteers could fit underneath. They were very careful not to hurt Sigourney Weaver, but she encouraged them to grab her head. This made the scene much more terrifying. They weren't supposed to grab her head. She was Ugh. supposed to just put her head back. Mm-hmm. And oh. she kept doing that and just wasn't scary. Didn't feel right. Yeah. yeah. So, but they were like, we don't, she said, just grab my head. And they were like, we don't want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was like, it'll be better for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just I mean, rip honestly, it right <laughs> it's like that that losing control of our, all parts of your body, especially yeah, like yeah. your mind and your brain. So, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> <laughs> Stop motion animator Randy Cook developed the demon dogs that await Dana and her neighbor, Lewis, played by Rick Moranis. Yay. That's something that I really, I really sticks out to me as a kid is when Rick Moranis is running away from mm-hmm. them, from the mm-hmm. dogs, and yeah. he turns around and the dog like jumps, like, and he just like, he like slides down the glass. Yeah. 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 In front of all these people that are just eating dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're just eating dinner and they're not paying any attention to what's going on. They see him freaking out. And, the, you know, as soon as he starts like going down there, they just continue eating. And, like, yeah. Polite conversation. Man, that was something that really freaked me out <laughs> as a kid was that, that visual of him being dragged down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. Dan Aykroyd originally wanted the Ghostbusters costumes to resemble sanitation suits, a design that showed through in the final product. But it was Theoni V. Aldridge who designed the iconic uniforms. Aldridge was a costume designer for several Broadway productions and films, including The Great Gatsby and Annie. Her Ghostbusters designs are likely her most famous, as screen-worn versions of the suits have sold for thousands of dollars. Yeah. Dang. The suits are so elegant. They're yeah. so simple. Yeah. They look like exterminator, exterminator suits. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just they have the patch with the name. Yeah. And I love it. Like these guys had no money, but they had yeah. they were able to get bespoke suits <laughs> with yeah. like their, the with yeah. their names on patches and like, you know. <laughs> yeah. And they keep up since they're in a fire department. They, yes. they each have their own locker area. Yeah, they keep them in the lockers. It's like it, it also brings to mind just like the firemen suits and mm-hmm. stuff because they, they do mm-hmm. the same yes, thing. Yes, so. yeah. Like when there's a ghost emergency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I think it adds to that feeling that we talked about of it being very mundane and they come at it very yeah. blasé. Yeah. Because it's not like they're armored up and protected by these special suits. It's like they're yeah. just, they're like janitors almost. Yes. They're just cleaning up yeah. the mess. Well, we absolutely cannot talk about Ghostbusters without talking about the music. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's one of the most, I guess. I mean, uh, does it come to mind? <laughs> Famed composer Elmer Bernstein had worked with Ivan Reitman four times before, even though he was best known for his sweeping dramatic scores. He wrote The Magnificent Seven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. he did. Yeah. He, he wrote a lot of stuff. Yeah. He actually wrote the score to The Black Cauldron. Oh. <laughs> All right. Bernstein believed that the music didn't need to be comical for the movie's jokes to work. He blended together the serious, comedic, and romantic elements of the film into a seamless score that perfectly accented the movie. It was the most difficult score he had written for Reitman. Like, the music takes the movie very seriously, which is very helpful because yeah. we, you know, they want that. They wanted parts of the movie to be serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bernstein's son, Peter, orchestrated the score with David Spear. The trio had worked together before, and the process was fairly streamlined. Bernstein would sketch out lines for them to translate onto a score page, sometimes giving very little information while telling them how the music should sound. 
He'd give him a couple of lines and he'd say, you know what to do. <laughs> okay. I mean, if I guess if you've got the experience, yeah. maybe you do know what to do. But at the same yeah. time, I'd be like, uh, I mean. Little direction. You got anything? For yeah. Two unusual instruments appear in the score. One is an on day's march knot, which is a cross between a keyboard and a theremin. Ooh. The other was a Yamaha synthesizer DX7, which was brand new and highly sought after. Oh my goodness. But since Bernstein had connections, they were able to sneak one out of an importer's shop and use it right away. Oh, what the cool. hell? They had to sneak it out the back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, like, could they not just buy it? I mean, I'm sure that the production paid for it. Pe- there were really long lines of people oh, like, I see, uh, like I waiting see. waiting okay. for these things. So, so like th- theoretically if they walked out the front door there'd be a person who's like, "Wait a second. Yeah, like if they, you're getting one. It, I need it. one." Yeah, they basically like skipped the line. Got it. They like oh, okay. to get it and cuz he like knew the guy. That makes sense. And then, okay. so they had to sneak <laughs> it out the back. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. The first note that we hear in the score was a factory sound that came from the synthesizer. They worked against the clock, and the score to the film's climax and end credits was written the day before the final recording session. Man, it's so funny to think about this. Like, I feel like there are two songs that come to mind when I think about this, like, synthesizer-type music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because at the big the... the the theme, you know, yeah. that sound yeah. <laughs> is ridiculous. I don't know why, but that, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> so, I don't yeah. know, but yeah. like, I don't think they're even in like, they're not related in any way, No, <laughs> but for some reason, that type of music with the synthesizer puts me in that place. Yeah. And yeah. I, I really like that, actually. <laughs> Some of Bernstein's music was substituted for pop music, most famously Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Huey Lewis and the News was approached to write the title song, but they were tied up working on Back to the Future. So 28-year-old Ray Parker Jr. was asked instead. The music supervisor told him that the song needed two things, a saxophone riff, and the word <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> there you go. That's all he needs. Nice. <laughs> Parker didn't know how he could naturally work that word into the song until he saw a pesticide commercial that asked viewers to call their number. Uh, wow. It made him realize that if he asked, who you gonna call, then a crowd could respond with Ghostbusters, and he wouldn't have to sing the word at all. Nice. Ah, got him. He, he oh my god. Yeah, he did not want to have to sing. He was like, "This is so awkward. Like, how do you mm-hmm. work this word? This word yeah. is not natural. Like, how yeah. do you work this into the into the song?" <laughs> wow, it worked that's out. That's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> Ivan Reitman directed a music video to go along with the tune, starring all the main actors and some special guests like John Candy and Chevy Chase. The song was a massive hit and is still a featured guest at every Halloween party. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> it's, I know we, we've hummed it like, what, eight so, times by now? So many it's times. It's so incredibly iconic. It kind of transcends the movie in a it way. It really does. Yeah. Oh. Ghostbusters became a hit for many reasons, some of them being the incredible cast. As mentioned before, Dan Aykroyd was the original Ghostbuster. Not only did he come up with the concept for the movie... He helped write it. The actor and comedian was close with John Belushi, who he had hoped would star with him in the original film. Aykroyd has said that he was writing a line of dialogue for Belushi when he got the call that his friend had died. Oh. That That's sucks a lot. Yeah. What a different movie it would have been. It would have been very different. Oh, yeah. I think that initially, I mean, like he thought of a couple different actors, and I know Eddie Murphy's name was tossed around a little bit, but... I think initially it was just going to be two Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. and it was just going to be him and John Belushi. Yeah. Interesting. It made a lot of sense for Aykroyd to play Ray, the true believer. Of the group, he had the strongest ties to the paranormal through his family history. Bill Murray had a reputation for being difficult to nail down, 
But he had seen a version of the Ghostbusters script before the rewrites, and he was interested in working with Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, who he had worked with at the Second City Comedy Troupe. And I think he'd worked with them a couple times before, too. Yeah, he mentioned Caddyshack, so that's at least one. Yeah. And one of the things that made them super nervous, (laughs) because they said he was really hard to nail down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was always like a fight, they said, to get him to say yes to a movie. (laughs) And, you know, before they had even talked to him, Dan Aykroyd was like, oh, Billy said he'll do it. Billy will do it. Oh. And they were like, okay, uh, but, but like, will he though? And he was yeah. like, no, Billy said he would, so he will. They, they both worked at Second City together. Mm-hmm. And when Dan Aykroyd came to Second City for the first time, Bill Murray met him at the airport and he like took him around town Mm -hmm. and like showed, you know, helped him get settled and stuff like that. If he's calling him Billy, I mean, they seem pretty close. One of the funniest things is that they call like in all the special features and Mm -hmm. all that. They talk about it's Billy and it's, it's Billy Danny. and Danny. Uh, yeah. And it's like so weird to hear it is Billy and Danny. Everybody yeah. is Billy. Yeah. And it's so weird because, yeah, it's like you never you never hear that. No, mm-hmm. it's always like and Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. And they like, talk about John Belushi and they call him Johnny. Yeah. He's oh. like, yeah, before Johnny died, you know. And like, it's like. I'm like, who's what? Johnny? What are you talking Johnny? about? Yeah. Johnny who? That yeah. is odd. Yeah. Because somebody who's not in the <laughs> industry we only yeah. hear their like, you know, Stage quote unquote names. official yeah. names. Yeah. Murray was known as a great improviser and he came up with a lot of his lines on the spot. People that watched him work on the set said that he would co- he would get more animated and excited with each take, coming up with more material until he hit his peak and began to calm down. That's when Reitman knew it was time to move on to the next scene. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd says that at least 50% of the film's success was owed to Bill Murray. He almost felt like the leader of the group. Yeah. I know, I know yeah. that all, the four of them were on very even ground, mm-hmm. but he, he had that confidence and that personality yeah. that really kind of put him out more. I feel like it, it follows him a little bit more yeah. than yeah. the other like characters, but yeah, he they are pretty e- even. But yeah, he is kind of like the leader of the group. Yeah. yeah. He's it's just because he's like so outgoing and he's Right. He's like a used car salesman. He's yeah. yeah. He, he doesn't have the title of leader, but he yeah. acts the part. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz nobody else speaks yeah. up. Before Ghostbusters, Harold Ramis co-wrote and directed Caddyshack. He was a huge name in comedy and a major influence to many current comedians but he will always be remembered best for his role as Egon Spengler. As co-writer of the film, Ramis added the romantic element of the story. He knew how to ground the futuristic sci-fi elements in a modern-day setting. According to his daughter, Ramis was as well-read as Egon, and he fit the character perfectly. Aww. He did play the part of, like, this is the brains behind the operation yeah. very, very yeah. well. I know. The way he delivered the lines in such, like, a monotone mm-hmm. yeah. voice, I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. So how- matter of fact. Yeah. Ernie Hudson has appeared in over 200 roles, but his turn as Winston is probably his most famous one. Shortly after working with Ivan Reitman in another movie, Hudson ran into him in an elevator, and Reitman told him about the new movie that he was working on. Hudson didn't watch a lot of TV, and admittedly wasn't sure who Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray were. Wow. (laughs) All right. But he found out from his agent that the project was called Ghostbusters, and there was a part available. It took a lot of work to get an audition, but Hudson turned out to be perfect for the part. I've always really liked Winston. Yeah. I think he is the perfect fourth because it's like he's the glue, right? Because you've got... You've got Dan Aykroyd who believes in the ghost and is just kind of like, you know, very spiritual in that way. You've got Harold Ramis who is the brains, as we just mentioned. Yeah. You've got Bill Murray as the confident, over-the-top yep. leader-y type. He doesn't believe, he's very skeptical, yep. slash just doesn't believe exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And then Ernie <laughs> Hudson is there holding it all together, actually getting the stuff done. He's yep. the common man. And, <laughs> and he handles it 
beautifully. I know. Well. I don't know where. Like he just comes out of nowhere and he just, yep, okay. Yeah. He's like, okay, I understand. Just, just does it somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah it works. I love it. <laughs> and he has one of my favorite lines. I was just gonna say that. I was like, I think time. he has one of your favorite lines. Yeah, right? yeah. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Winston appears on screen over halfway through the film. He's the fourth Ghostbuster, a guy who is responding to a Help Wanted ad. Hudson later said that he identifies with Winston more than any other character he's played, as he's a reluctant warrior. He's always felt like the character was on the outside because the other three Ghostbusters have been together for so long. He explained this feeling by saying, I've met a lot of kids of all colors, but especially a lot of black kids and Hispanic kids who say they identify, because I think that's a feeling that a lot of kids experience when they are in an environment or went to a school where people are nice, but they feel a little bit different. I think it works for the character. Yeah. Yeah. That's the character was initially supposed to be in the movie a lot longer, Mm -hmm. but it really works that he kind of just joins them at yeah. the end there. Yeah. Because he just takes it so well. Mm-hmm. He show you know what I mean? He sets so much grace under pressure. <laughs> He's yeah. just like, yep. I just need a job. And then it's just like, okay, you know. <laughs> Here you go. Fight some ghosts. Yep. <laughs> yep. This is the job I ended up with. <laughs> oh, boy. When Harold Ramis suggested that there be a love interest in Ghostbusters, the character of Dana Barrett was born. Sigourney Weaver had already made a name for herself in Ridley Scott's Alien, but she wanted the chance to be in a comedy. Weaver immediately impressed Reitman when she suggested that Dana be possessed by the demon dogs in the film. She got on all fours and demonstrated how that would look. Reitman went to Ramis and they immediately added it to the script. Oh, man. (laughs) You know you found a good one when when that is like your first thing. Yeah. Weaver worked well with Bill Murray. The moment they met, Murray reportedly picked her up and threw her over his shoulder and carried her down the street. (laughs) She was taken with him and they became great scene partners. They both improvised the scene where they meet in Dana's apartment for the first time. Rick Moranis was not the first choice for Louis Tully, Dana's nerdy neighbor. In fact, the character was meant to be played by John Candy. But Candy didn't seem to understand what Reitman wanted with the character, and he was replaced by up-and-coming comedian Rick Moranis. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's that's odd. I wonder... Yeah. He said it was... It, apparently, he wanted the character to have a German accent. Yep. Oh. And to, like, walk... To have a bunch of German shepherds. Mm-hmm. And I think that they were just like, that's no. not... He just couldn't grasp what they wanted. Yeah, and like it just didn't, they, it, they just couldn't yeah. agree on the yeah. character. And so they were just like, okay, well, this just isn't going to work yeah. out. Yeah. Hmm. I know. Oh, but it worked out for the better, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a, yeah, good choice. When Moranis took on the role, he reshaped the character, who was originally meant to be a swinging bachelor. Moranis improvised a lot of his lines, pulling inspiration from a nerdy character that he had played on Second City Television. Although he had been in other projects, Ghostbusters was his first big Hollywood film. And then there would be many others. Yes. Oh, yes. He was in Little Shop of Horrors a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And Annie Potts had been in a few things before Ghostbusters, but this was her first major role. Afterwards, she became a bit of a TV star as she appeared in many different shows, like Magnum P.I., Joan of Arcadia, Ugly Betty, Boston Legal, and Law & Order SVU. She has also most recently landed a major role in Young Sheldon as his meemaw. Aww. (laughs) So cute. Yeah. So she's their, like, secretary, basically? Yeah, Mm -hmm. she is. (laughs) She's she's the receptionist. Yeah, receptionist. I love her. I love her so so much. So good. Yeah. In Ghostbusters, her dry sense of humor plays well against the guys. Yeah. It's perfect. Doesn't take any of their shit. (laughs) Nope. And it's just... (laughs) She's so... It's like, I mean, we're talking about how this is just, like, a crazy thing that's being treated so mundane. What's the most mundane thing? Mm -hmm. Like, a really, really bored receptionist. Like, that is every, like, small business has one of those. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Hello, Ghostbusters. 
Yes, of course they're serious. Ghostbusters premiered in June of 1984 and made $13.6 in its first weekend. Wow. That's good yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. It spent five weeks at number one, pulling in over $229 million, making it the second highest grossing movie of the year behind Beverly Hills Cop. Reviews for Ghostbusters were largely favorable when the movie debuted. Roger Ebert rated it 3.5 out of 4 stars, noting that it's a unique instance of a blockbuster that successfully blends sly dialogue with extraordinary effects. It is, quote, an exception to the general rule that big special effects can wreck a comedy, according to Ebert, who pointed out that the effects were there to support the actors' performances rather than the other way around. Yeah. Mm, that's important. That is a really good point because, yeah, I mean, usually you yeah. don't have comedies with major special effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you have now is just effects-heavy movies that yeah. are... Yeah. Just blockbusters, action, whatever, mm, yeah. where there's just, they lean on humor. Yeah. yeah. I think I think a good example of it is like Guardians of the Galaxy, mm -hmm. but a bad yeah. example is maybe the rest. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It just doesn't yeah. work yeah. as well. They're not comedies. They're action movies that have like comedic elements. Yeah. 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 Ghostbusters was nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song for Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Of I course. I can't believe it didn't. What won? Yeah. Right? What could have beaten that? that. Yeah. <laughs> it also received three Golden Globe nominations for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and Best Original Song, again, for <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> Unfortunately, it did not win any of these awards, but it did win Best Fantasy Film at, you guessed it, the Saturn Award. <gasps> oh, we, yeah. We love us our Saturn That's Award. That's because they, they pick them right. They know how to yeah. pick them. Now it's time for some fun facts. Fun facts. Yeah. When the movie was panned and scanned for television, Harold Ramis often got cut out because he was off to the side in the shots. No. Oh, yeah. Man. There was another version of the library ghost created for Ghostbusters that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. It was used later in the film called in a film called Fright Night. The oh. library ghost was going to change into a third form that was even more horrifying. Wow. And they, they took it out. More terrifying? <laughs> I know, yeah. Oh, thank you. From what it was? The original Slimer suit became damaged shortly after filming and no longer exists. Like the character, it too is a ghost. Aww. Oh. Yeah, they just said they should have they should have preserved it immediately because it was a wonderful suit. Yeah. But they said, yeah, it just got put put in a closet basically and got Aww. smashed. And oh, bummer. Yeah. There's a blooper where the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man isn't wearing his tie. Bill Bryan, who wore the costume, still remembers the moment he realized he had forgotten to put the tie back on while they were putting flash bulbs in the character's bib. He said he woke up in the middle of the night. Oh, no. Like, the, that night, he woke up in the, about midnight, he said. Oh. And, was like, and he was like, oh, my God, I wasn't wearing the bib. Oh, I wasn't wearing no. the bib during the shoot. Oh, no. <laughs> no one on set noticed, and Brian later told the associate producer, who reassured him that no one else would notice. He yeah. said he went to the producer because they just watched the dailies, and he was mm -hmm. like, it confirmed it. He was like, I'm not wearing it. And he goes over to the producer, mm -hmm. and the producer goes, well, I didn't notice, yeah. and I don't think anyone else is going to notice. Yeah. And he said, but if they do, who do I bill for the $25,000 shoot <laughs> if we have to do this Redo again? It. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. was like, never mind. Yes, fine. He was like, yeah, okay. I mean, you just think it's a supernatural being, you know? <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah, he has exactly. a bib, sometimes he doesn't, yeah, you know? Who knows, right. He exists on a different plane of yeah, time. And exactly. it was, it was yeah. Sunday when he didn't have that on yeah. to him. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And, you know, I mean... <laughs> And you know, I mean, like, he kind of just came out of Dan Ackward's imagination anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. One of the earliest screenings of Ghostbusters was at the school that Harold Ramis' daughter attended. He arranged to show the film there at a benefit, which turned out to be a great testing audience. Oh, perfect. Oh, man, how cool would that be to see it yeah. super early like that and yeah. not even know that it's going to be a hit? Yeah, and then yeah. she said that people went crazy, like, Aww. for that movie, because it... Aww. 
I mean, it's it's so I mean, popular, it's so and yeah. he uh, he would drop her off at school, and the kids would swarm him for autographs. Ah. Oh, so Amazing. cool. <laughs> Okay, any last thoughts, you guys? Um, nope. <laughs> yep. Not a one. I'm just kidding. Yep. <laughs> this movie will always have a place in my watch list. It will always have a place in my heart because it it makes me remember that like you can beat the ghosts you know it's like it's (laughs) like you know i i stay away from horror stuff but supernatural things are still very intriguing and this frames it in a way where it's not scary even a little bit i mean there's creepy things there's the scary librarian ghost Mm -hmm. and the whole zool and taking over the world and actually the stay puffed marshmallow man when he gets angry he's he's intimidating anger is yeah but it's just like you know it's goofy (laughs) they're still cracking jokes the whole time and it's and it you don't have to feel scared to be watching a movie about ghosts and i I'm so thankful that that exists <laughs> yeah. because there aren't many. Yeah. So it, it will be one of my top movies for forever, I think. Yeah. I mean, Dan Aykroyd said he wanted to like revitalize the horror comedy, and mm-hmm. this absolutely yeah. did that. I mean, oh, yeah. Pe- yeah. It was very popular. People went to go see it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But also, oh my gosh, it's so quotable. It's so rewatchable. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this is a movie that is just genuinely funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you don't like the jokes that they make, the concept is funny. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just all of it. And I, gosh, you know, <laughs> it, it is such a fun Halloween movie. Yeah. It's a fun movie to bring out. And I, I am a little surprised it took us so long to cover it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we've got a lot to cover. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. Exactly. But this is a movie that we could probably do five episodes on. Oh, oh yeah. There <laughs> is so much <laughs> information about this movie. Yeah, we do we do five episodes and the first four are all special effects. Oh yeah. my god. I oh, yeah. was pulling my hair out trying, trying to, decide. to decide what we should say in this episode because there's so much. Yeah. So if you want to know more about this, like watch the special features, yeah. watch the commentary. Yeah. There's lots of books. There's Robin lots of books. So many books. About yeah. Read, it. read the books about it. It's yeah. really fascinating how they made all of this and they did yeah. it so quickly <laughs> and they did yeah. it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And you still have people that dress as Ghostbusters oh, for yeah. Halloween. No. Yeah. You still have it in, mo- in yes. TV shows I and movies reference. Next yeah. week like, is Trick or Treat, and like, I know I'm going to see some Ghostbusters. Yeah. A, a brand new Ghostbusters game comes out in like weeks. Oh my gosh. Like it's, yeah. it's yeah. coming it's, very yeah. soon. Absolutely. It's still very much relevant. Right. Oh, yeah. Ghostbusters came at exactly the right time. It pulled in audiences with some of the most popular comedians of the 1980s and amazed them with a perfect blend of humor and horror. This film is unbelievably quotable with lines like, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. One of my dad's favorites. (laughs) Yes. As well as many others. This is a film with staying power. Sure, some of the humor hasn't aged well, but the concept of teaming up with your best buddies to take down supernatural forces from another dimension while making quips will always appeal to audiences. Ghostbusters found a way to take the strange and sinister and make it not only mundane, but hilarious. And it's because of this that there will always be only one answer to that fateful question. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! There we go. Oh my gosh. Well, that's another case closed. That's a Halloween close. Yeah, that is a Halloween close. That's a spooky month close. Spooky month is over. Say bye to the Boo Case Diaries (laughs) for now. For another year. Forever, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's the most spooky part. <laughs> the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we want to thank our patrons: John, JD, Anthony, Shelley, Bob, and Jacob. Yay! Thank you. thank you all so much. We are still here and not ghosts because of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anybody else that wants to join Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Black Case Diaries. 
You can go to our website, blackcasediaries.com, find all of our episodes there. You can find all of our blog posts, things like that. And then we have an announcement now. We are now officially uploading to YouTube. Yay! So you can find us there as well. Yes. We, we are slowly going to get all of our episodes on there. It might take us a little while, mm -hmm. but our newest ones will most definitely be up there. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For now, they're just audio versions, just like yeah. you listen to on your favorite podcast platform. Mm -hmm. But on YouTube, because we've heard from many a people that some, That's you like where to listen, you listen to podcasts to on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. So, so there it is. That option go. is now available. Yeah. So yeah. Join us over there if you prefer. And subscribe. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what you do over there. Exactly. Yes. Please subscribe. And we'll uh, talk at you next time. <laughs> Bye. See you at Christmas time. See you in Christmas. <laughs> the scariest holiday of all. Oh, the pressure. Bye. Bye. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results.